You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm Michelle Camayo. I am the benefit compliance leader here at Bolton & Company. And what that means is that I lead a team of compliance analysts, and I'm responsible for, you know, our compliance deliverable here at Bolton. And I, that means that I'm constantly trying to educate our clients and help you stay compliant. So I have practical discussions with employers, not giving legal advice, certainly not giving legal advice during, legal advice during this call or at any time, and always stay tuned for clarification on topics that we've discussed during this time. The goal today is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. I, I know that HR leaders, business owners, controllers, C-suite, we all want validation on what we've read, maybe that second set of eyes, and guidance where we may not have any yet. So the hope is that this conversation provides a little bit of that validation and guidance. We're going to start off by talking about some updates from the past month, then going over the key topics to my favorite segment, Toilet Paper Talk and a guidance wish list to keep track of what we've gotten guidance on and what we have not gotten guidance on. This is a podcast. It says listen to all four past episodes. I believe there are seven at this point. Feel free to download, and you can listen whenever you'd like. Let's get to the good stuff, the highlights. First, you should all know that there were new model FMLA forms that were issued. And there's a great blog written by one of my past guest speakers, Jeff Novak. He is the author of FMLAinsights.com. You can find a link to the forms, and you can find his commentary on the forms, which I think is incredibly helpful. So I would point you to FMLAinsights.com, subscribe to his blog, and you'll be able to to read it and download those new model forms. Let's talk about the public health emergency. An HHS official came out on Twitter and said that they are going to extend the public health emergency. It was set to expire July 25th. Renewal of the public health emergency lasts 90 days. So the renewal will last 90 days from July 25th, which would put us at, I think it's right around October 25th. So there's nothing official from HHS, but when you have one of, um, when you have an HHS spokesperson go on Twitter and say, yes, we're going to extend it, uh, pretty much count on that. And, And that was really a courtesy because a lot of group health plans and carriers needed to prepare if there was going to be an extension. And that's because the end of the public health emergency is relevant to a few different things, including, you know, whether or not COVID testing is required to be covered and uh, whether or not, uh, you know, it also has to do with COBRA deadlines as well because it, it comes into play with the outbreak period. That is expected to be renewed again and last for 90 days from July 25th. Today, we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about COVID screenings in the workplace. This has gotten a lot of traction, so I want to have a conversation about that. 
Also need to talk about the new California DHMC, which is the Department of um, Health Managed Care, and they, their emergency rulemaking. I want to talk about that. A quick note, the ACA affordability for 2021 has been released. Uh, barely any movement from 9.78% from 9 and for 2021, it will be 9.83%. So for those employers who are gearing up for their renewals that will have months in the 2021 plan year, you want to look at that 9.83% number. That's going to be the most relevant for 2021. And Congress came back into session, so there's been talk about pending legislation. We know it as the HEROES Act, which is that, that last set of, um, well, we, what we hope is the last set of stimulus bills that will be passed. But the HEROES Act was just the one that the House passed. The Senate Republicans are going to release their own bill. So I don't expect the, the legislation to be passed as the HEROES Act, but it just gives us a starting point which is what the Senate Republicans are looking at. The clock is ticking on the July 31st expiration date of those unemployment checks, so I know there's some pressure there in Congress. There does seem to be an agreement between everyone, all the politicians, that there is another package needed, but just as, as uh, early as yesterday or recent as yesterday, I've heard that the Senate Republicans are having a really hard time coming to an agreement uh, to present their counter to the HEROES Act. So we may not have another stimulus package passed until, you know, looking like it could be mid-September if, if for the worst case scenario. Or, again, maybe never. It's really going to depend on the politicians and, and, and uh, sitting on the Hill. Now, I was talking to some of my friends this past weekend, and we were, we were actually uh, on the beach playing volleyball. And we got kicked off at a beach. They're going to start to issue citations. And so we just sat around and chatted and uh, about, you know, whether or not was it, should we be out there playing volleyball? Was it healthy? Was it healthier than the hundred people that were kind of partying uh, about a couple yards away on the beach? And it got me thinking. So I started looking and I found this really neat brief. It's called the key characteristics of COVID-19 patients which is a, health, a fair health brief published on July 14th. I've got some highlights. I just thought this was interesting. This is the only reason this is in here. And if you wanted to reference this brief, you can easily Google it and you'll find it. So here are some highlights that I've read from the brief. The most common comorbidity is chronic kidney disease and kidney failure, present in 13% of hospitalized patients. Although note that this study was done using private insurance claims, did not include Medicare or Medicare, Medicaid claims, which is probably a good number of claims in there as well. So that number may be slightly skewed. The CDC lists people with chronic kidney disease at an increased risk of severe illness from COVID-19. In fact, the first two reported U.S. deaths were due to, were both patients with kidney failure. So that was the most common comorbidity. Thought that was interesting. It was a question that a lot of us were asking over the weekend. It was like, oh, well, what is, you know, isn't it people that have underlying health conditions? Which is another, sort of another way of saying comorbidity. The second most common was type 2 diabetes, except for the South. In the South, it was hypertension. 
and then it was then it was type 2 diabetes nationally when looking at the private insurance claims covid-19 was common most commonly associated with the age group 51 to 60 30% of the claims were coming out of that age bracket for private insurance. And then this, and to me, I immediately thought, well, I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, the 60 plus. But if you think about it, private insurance is prevalent with those under Social Security retirement age. And so that could be skewing this because this data isn't accounting for the government plan, the Medicare or the Medicaid. Children accounted for the smallest claims share at one and a half percent. And Dr. Fauci came out and said the age distribution's in flux because the average age has gone down by 15 years. And I think that that's largely due to the fact that the younger kids are now feeling uh, more liberated and they're going out and they're partying together and, and they're not caring that much. I think we saw that in Florida. I certainly saw that on the beach this weekend. So that, I guess that seems to make sense. You will get this this afterwards. You'll be able to reference this study if you're interested. This was really just to give you some highlights and nothing other than that. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. The COVID screenings in the workplace. We have been talking to employers the past several weeks about whether or not they want to bring in some on-site screeners. What do they want to require testing? Do they want to make it voluntary? And I thought, well, let's talk about it today. Let's talk about, does it even make sense for COVID screenings? And if it does, in what capacity? So I wanted to put together some information for you. And the first thing is let's look at screenings as uh, mandatory. So let's say you're an employer and you want to make screenings mandatory, not because you've seen a known exposure in the workplace, but because you just want to... To, to do it for safety, you know, create a safe work environment. The first thing you want to take note of if you make them mandatory is that it is then the employer's responsibility to pay, not the group health plan, the employer's responsibility to pay. It also creates a host of maybe potential issues as well when you make it mandatory. For example, do you need to pay for the time off? Or if your employees are going to travel, you need to pay for that travel time since you're, as the employer, making it mandatory. I would say we all sort of agree. We've all come to the same conclusion that for the majority of employers, mandatory screenings is going to open up a can of worms that employers do not want to touch. And I also will end with neither the CDC nor Cal OSHA recommends testing with no known exposure. So if you have any questions about that, please do let me know. I have, you know that I've had Nicole Cam on from Fisher Phillips. She's an attorney there. She's an employment attorney there. And Nicole Cam also, the, the consensus is that mandatory screenings is going to, to open up a host of issues that the employer may not be ready for. And so you'd want to very carefully think through a strategy that involves mandatory screenings. The first one is maybe even budget because it is then the employer's responsibility to pay that group health plan does not have to pay in that instance. And so let's look at the next option. Well, what if you're an employer and you want to provide voluntary screenings for employees that are showing no symptoms, 
and have had no known exposure. So what about in that event? Let's see, what sense, does that make any sense for your organization? Well, let's talk it through, because it's got a few components here you want to consider. The federal government, first of all, did not mandate that carriers pay for COVID-19 testing unless it's deemed medically appropriate by an attending physician. So, for example, if I'm an employee, I have no symptoms, I have no known exposure, it's not going to be deemed medically appropriate by a physician. Therefore, my group health plan will not cover it. Although, here's where it gets a little bit sticky. The California DMHC just passed an emergency rulemaking pertaining to screening essential employees and the group health plan. It only applies to fully insured medical plans. But here's what it says. Carriers in California with fully insured plans must pay for screenings for essential employees even if it's not medically appropriate, which means they don't show symptoms and they've had no known exposure for essential employees only. But there are some limits on this. For example, the employee has to call the health plan prior to testing to get an appointment with a testing provider. And then the health plan has to provide testing within 48 hours, within 15 minutes or 30 miles from the person's work or home. If the health plan cannot meet those two conditions, then the employee, the essential employee, is free to go wherever they want to any available testing site and the group health plan has to pay. That's the caveat. So if you're thinking about bringing in an on-site screener to test your essential employees, most likely it's not gonna be covered by the group health plan. The reason why is because under California, the employee has to call the health plan and give them a chance to send them to an in-network provider. And so it's going to be difficult as an employer, it's going to be difficult to get testing on, on site for your essential employees. You will most likely have to pay out of pocket because the carrier needs to have a chance to send them somewhere that's in network. We do have an employer or two who has gone forward with voluntary screening. And even for those that show no symptoms or no, and, and haven't had exposure. So the employee essentially says, okay, there's a screener on site today. Do I want to go get tested? If they say yes, they go, they get tested. The attending physician is going to say, do you show any symptoms? If they don't show symptoms and they don't have any recent exposure, there's a chance that group health plan is not going to cover that if it's being done on site. I have a few questions, so I'm going to stop here. I have a question. Are private schools responsible for payments since the governor is mandating for teachers to be tested. Yes, that is the only entity I could see being responsible for paying would be the employer and, and not the group health plan. Um, this is a question I'd, I'd rather um, say that's, that's my first thought here, but let me ask an employment attorney. I am not one. So I have to uh, reach out to Nicole Tam and ask her if there's another avenue that I don't know about. But um, as far as I know, it's going to be the, the employer responsible for that testing. You know, it's the employer who's responsible for creating that safe work environment. And if California is mandating that, then um, I don't see how to get around that.
I don't see who would pick up the cost. You know, who would, what would be the alternative? Who would pay for it? If we require mandatory daily temperature screenings, what obligations are required of employers? Well, I will say we do have lots and lots of employers who are doing daily, or who are tempting, it's what we call it, who are taking temperatures daily. I think that that is a fantastic idea. There are some requirements. There, there are some things to be aware of when you do that. And um, you can look at the Fisher Phillips website. They have a ton of forms that you can use. Um, it's a longer conversation, so I'm sorry for the, that person that um, posed that question than I, we could get into today. Um, but I can send you some info in the Q&As, and that way I can write it all out for you instead of just verbally give you the answer there. Okay, so I have a question here. There are a number, and this is true, I know, there are a number of screening vendors marketing their services to employers for routine monthly screenings. Yes, I have seen that. Whether it is or it is or is not medically necessary. Uh, yes, these vendors are saying that they will submit all the claims as medically necessary so they will be approved by the carriers. Yes, I, that's a great practice. If the if the test is medically appropriate, meaning someone is showing symptoms or there's been exposure, the carrier will and does have to pay for it. So if there's a screener who comes to you as the employer and says, well, we'll test everyone who wants to be tested and those that are medically uh, deemed medically appropriate, we can bill the health insurance. That's fantastic because that, that will save, that will be the way to go because anytime it's medically appropriate, the group health plan uh, will pay for it. So that is, that. there's nothing wrong with that at all. Does temperature testing need to be done on the clock for employees? Yes, Nicole Cam has answered this one in prior webinars or podcasts. Yes, it does need to be on the clock. I do want to confirm, Cynthia, thank you, that there's no requirement to provide COVID-19 testing. I have not seen it out there. In fact, it's not even a recommendation from the CDC. I personally have not seen a requirement to test. Um, and I've looked, <laughs> of course, to prepare for this webinar, and things change daily. So obviously, um, it's all you always want to check back in. But I even checked with Nicole Cam yesterday, and there's there's no requirement to test. And in fact, I think a lot of people would give you a lot of valid concerns as to why you would not want to provide testing, which we will talk about today. Is there a limit on how many tests a carrier will cover? No, there is not. If they, if it's deemed medically appropriate, it will be covered by the group health plan. Okay, I'm going to stop here and move us on to the next slide because we've got another scenario to to speak to, and that one is one that I'm seeing as well: voluntary on-site screenings. The group health plan may cover it, just as someone said prior that they are noting that if the, the on-site screener is saying, the company that brings the on-site screening is saying, if any of them are medically appropriate, we're going to build a group health plan. Good. That's great. That, that's, I think that's the most efficient and cost-effective way to go about it. Um, but you want to consider a few factors when you're talking to a vendor who can do on-site screenings. First, you want to make sure the carrier and the stop loss vendor, if you have fully, if you have self-insured coverage, you have a you have a stop loss carrier. 
instead of a, um, an actual carrier. So run it by what you're doing, run it by them. I really encourage a transparent conversation because the last thing you want is your employer to be hit with a large bill because your group health plan has denied claims. And you might say, well, the law says they have to cover it. There are so many nuances in any law that I am so hesitant to say, oh, just take it for, take that as a yes. So what we're doing here at Bolton is we are so super diligent. We will go to the carrier and we will say, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're doing it. Here's how they're going to bill it. Will you pay? And we're forcing the carrier to put that in writing. Whether or not the group health plan will cover it is almost always depending on if an attending physician deems it medically appropriate, deems it appropriate, which means are there symptoms and has, or has there been recent exposure? And when a claim form is submitted to the insurance carrier, that's how the insurance carrier knows whether or not symptoms were present or it was medically appropriate because the person filling out the claim form from the on-site clinic is gonna write in a DX code or a diagnostic code or uh, some sort of code telling them that it was medically appropriate. So that's how that happens on the back end. When you bring on or you're thinking about bringing on an on-site screener, ask yourself or ask them, not yourself, ask them, will the vendor bill the group health insurance? I know, there are some vendors who won't bill the HMOs, which makes sense. There are some vendors who won't bill at all, which some work comp vendors like Concentra, Concentra will not bill the group health insurance. So be mindful that you're doing this in the most cost-effective manner and, and know, you know, kind of just be mindful of what you need to look for. And the other part of this, which is important, does the public health emergency still exist? Now, why is that important? It's important because group health plans are only required to cover COVID testing at no cost share if there's a public health emergency. So if the HHS does not extend the public health emergency, carriers do not technically have to pay for the testing with no cost share. That's an important part as well. So we're finding two categories of, of vendors who test. The first category is through a work comp relationship. These vendors, by and large, don't build a group health plan. When you're doing it via a work comp relationship, it's, it's commonplace that they're going to bill you as the employer. They are not going to offer to build a group health plan when it's medically appropriate. The wellness vendors, however, this, is, um, this makes a lot of sense to me. We work with a lot of wellness vendors, and some of them have sort of pivoted their practice to offer COVID-19 testing. You know, we're all adjusting to this, this new environment and wellness vendors have done this as well. And what we're finding is generally the wellness vendors who have pivoted into COVID-19 testing, they are billing the group health plan. We'll stop here. Someone asked, what's the definition of medically appropriate? Medically appropriate would be if someone is showing symptoms or if someone has had a recent exposure or both. That is what they're using to deem it medically appropriate. 
Now, I have mentioned some of these considerations throughout the presentation or throughout our call today, but I want to focus a, a time right now to spend on some considerations before you provide the screenings or the testing. There's a host of privacy concerns, and I'm not saying that these concerns cannot be handled. I'm just saying be aware that when you start to screen or test, there could be HIPAA issues if you're running it through the group health plan. The results could be subject to HIPAA. Uh, there's CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act, comes into play for those that are, that are subject to CCPA. So you need a certain authorization to be completed by the employee to go forward with that testing, which again, you can find that authorization on Fisher Phillips website as well. Storing the test results, you know, do you really want the test results sitting in your files? It's going to create a liability because then you have to look at not only HIPAA issues, but CCPA and other data breach requirements or regulations that fall under, um, you know, an employment record. And then when you have a test result, then, then you have privacy concerns with notifying personnel of a positive result. All of those things need to be considered. And sharing results, for example, the LA County Department of Public Health has on their website, employers should not require a negative test result before employees return to work. So consider that, um, you know, if you are gonna have something, you know, you need to be tested before you return to work, just keep in mind LA Dep County Department of Public Health is saying, don't, don't ask to, to see that negative test result. I mentioned I've spoken to employment attorneys. They caution employers to keep only information necessary and strictly limit the access to that information. And maintain records only as long as necessary to manage the risk and then permanently delete once it's no longer needed. Keeping the results in the employer files, you need to treat it as uh, an employment medical record and may also be subject to HIPAA on the group health plan side of it. It really is gonna depend on your situation. And then consider, consider um, the frequency of testing. Uh, even what happens if you test and you're testing frequently, is there a false sense of security in between tests? And this one has been, I believe, a subject of some debate and a contentious conversation. But it does look like there is a potential for false positives or false negatives. So consider the accuracy of, of the screenings. We have an attorney in house. Her name is Carly. And we were talking about this one. And she said, well, you might also consider discrimination claims when you're putting together some sort of screening for employees. Are you testing all? Are you testing all at regular intervals? Are, and so the idea is that when you're testing, ensure that you are making, that you are prohibiting any discrimination claims. So you should test all, you should test all at the same intervals, or there should be really good bona fide business reasons if you don't. And if you're testing, if you are requiring off-site testing, there is a consideration that you will have to pay for travel and the time off for that testing. 
Someone asked, there is no legal requirement in California for testing to be required before returning to work. No, there is not. That's as of yesterday. Um, I have checked with several different sources. The answer to that is no. I have not seen a legal requirement to test before returning to work. I checked several different sources and an employment attorney. There's no requirement to test before returning to work. Someone asked even if there's a positive test originally. I'm glad you asked that because when there's a positive test in the workplace, that is a different animal. Today, we are not talking about positive tests in the workplace. We're really just talking about screenings for, for, uh, that are more proactive and preventive as opposed to if there's a positive test. When there's a positive test in the workplace, there should be a very detailed protocol in place for that, including testing for those that, including contact tracing and testing for those that were within um, certain recent exposure guidelines. So we will not get into that today. That could be a whole discussion into itself. All right, toilet paper talk. We're gonna talk about relevant issues I've been hearing, um, things we never thought would be relevant, but they are, just like toilet paper was very relevant back in March and April. Hearing a lot about COBRA subsidies. For those of you who've been around long enough to remember ARRA or ARRA, um, this has been done before, wondering if it's gonna be done again. There are three different COBRA subsidy bills in Congress right now. So I, I would say there seems like there's a pretty good chance we're gonna see some COBRA subsidies come back. And how that looks, we don't know yet. We have some idea because we can see it in the HEROES Act. And that's the other thing we're talking about this week. Congress is back, so I think a lot of people are saying, okay, great, is the HEROES Act going to be passed? It doesn't look like the HEROES Act is going to be passed as it is now because the Senate Republicans are working on their counter to the HEROES Act, but I'll tell you a little bit about what's in it. That way you can get used to what might be coming down the pipe. So there are federal subsidies for COBRA in the HEROES Act, 100% subsidies for those who terminate or reduce hours, and coverage for employee, the employee portion of the premium for furlough workers who, whose health benefits continue while the pay is suspended. That's in the bill. And that's gonna be effective back to March until January of 2021. That would be very interesting. So employers would pay the full cost of it and use the payroll tax credit to be reimbursed, very similar to FSCRA. That's what the HEROES Act looks like. So I keep saying, like, these are things that are, these are provisions built into the HEROES Act. I believe it's going to look different, but it's going to give you a foundation of, of knowledge for when the final version is passed or the final package is passed, assuming it will be passed, because that's even in question, really. And this has a hundred, the COBRA portion has a $106 billion price tag. The HEROES Act also has a, a provision for a public exchange special enrollment. They want to open it up for eight weeks. It also has a provision for Section 125. They're proposing to increase the dependent care FSA significantly, more than double. And they also want to put a, a down provision on the healthcare FSA. There's generally already one on the dependent care, but they now want to put one on the health FSA for the participants who terminate mid-plan year. 
So those provisions are also built into the HEROES Act. I, I, I highly doubt we're going to get them, that they're going to be uh, in the final package. But that is what some, some of the politicians are talking about. It is in, there. It is in the, the House bill that was passed. And COVID-19 screenings really are the buzz these past couple of weeks as more and more employers. And it's really it's two things that are happening. These, the on-site vendors are getting more aggressive in their marketing to employers that they can offer on-site screenings. That is definitely a reason for an uptick in screenings, that these, the vendors are marketing very aggressively. And so more and more employers are hearing about it and saying, oh, okay, this might work for us. So that's, that's one of the reasons why that is such a buzz. And of course, the other reason is why is when you're creating a safe work environment, it does make sense to say, oh, well, maybe we should offer some sort of testing. But again, we have discussed some considerations you would want to take into account before you do test. Cost being one of those big considerations. Privacy issues to me opens up a host of liability. As a compliance officer, that one hits very close to home those privacy issues. So there, there are some things to consider for sure. All right, moving on to the next slide. Our guidance wish, li wish list is pretty short. We've gotten guidance on a few things we wanted. We still have no guidance on the ACA measurement and stability period. And the pain point is if you have an employee who's furloughed for several months, that's going to affect whether or not they will be, if that will affect their, their um, hours during a look back period or a monthly measurement period. And so the idea is that if you're, if you're going to be laid off or furloughed for three, four, five months without any hours, they're not going to be in a stability period next year or whenever your next stability period is. So we're waiting for the IRS or the DOL to come out and say, hey, go ahead and disregard that period of time. But they haven't said that yet. So if you're measuring employees as of now, the, the hours that they're not working will affect whether or not they're in a stability period. Uh, although we could very well see the IRS come out and, and provide some relief to employees there. We've not seen it yet. Of course, those COBRA grace periods are extended, and we got a lot of guidance a couple of weeks ago, so everyone's feeling a lot better about, you know, what do we do? What if someone doesn't pay? Can we cancel them off of COBRA and, and things of that nature? I had asked someone to ask me to clarify again if teachers are required to test before returning to teaching in person at school. Um, I want... I have not seen that. I have not seen that. There's the second person to say that. If it's out there, I have not yet seen it. Maybe it's in a, uh, maybe the government or the governor set forth some guidelines for returning to school and that was one of them. But uh, I have not personally seen it. I didn't hear anything from the employment attorney who continues to tell me that re testing is not required to go back to work. I'll look into that. So when we send the follow-up email on Monday, I will provide clarity on that and make sure that I'm looking at that. But we may be confusing the governor's 
reopening schools plan with an actual requirement to, to test before the teachers go back to school. I am not sure. So I will seek the clarity on that and you will receive that Monday with a follow-up email. So I want to ask regarding ACA stability periods. Couldn't an employer be more generous to its variable hourly employees and choose to, disre to disregard the furlough months and its measurement process? Yes, absolutely. As long as your carrier is on board or your stop loss TPA, as the employer, you are almost always free to be, to be more generous than the law. There, nothing would stop you from being more generous than the law. All right, we have some resources I wanted to talk about today. To go over again, we have boltingco.com slash blog. Anytime there is a federal or um, state-level activity or legislation, I always release it on the blog, and we also send out a compliance alert. If you have a benefit-related question um, and you're a benefits client at Bolton, contact your client manager, and they can really go into detail with you and possibly bring me in the conversation, depending on what you're discussing. For the Bolton clients, ThinkHR is such a wonderful resource. I really can't say enough about their COVID-19 page. They have sample forms. They have a return to work checklist. They have the FFCR leave request form, sample welcome back letter. Uh, they have facts. They have two-minute videos that are, that are really cool that you can listen to about, you know, what if someone doesn't want to return to work? What do you do then? What if they're scared to return to work? So they have these quick two-minute video clips to help guide you in that process as well. The other website that I constantly review is fisherphillips.com. They have a lot of templates that you can use, including the CCPA-compliant authorization to test the form for COVID. They have a checklist. They have a five-step program for what happens if someone tests positive, what you need to do next. They, the, the amount of information that they put out there is fantastic. Oh, they also have one for schools, because I know we have some schools on the line. They have a back-to-business uh, FAQs for schools. I found that yesterday. I thought it was really interesting. And so FisherPhillips.com, really, really great resource. I think I have a few more questions that we'll go over. Okay. Someone asked about the FSA runout period extensions implemented at the employer's discretion, or are these extensions required? Well, there are uh, there are two pieces of legislation that were passed or laws that were passed that affect FSAs, and the first one was from the it was the EBSA disaster relief notice, and it is not optional. It is a requirement that uh, someone submitted an FSA claim that they get extra time to submit that claim. So that is not optional. The, and that goes to the end of the breakout period. Uh, and then if we're looking at the, the notice 2029-33 and 2020, excuse me, 2020-29, um, the joint notice, that one is completely optional completely optional. And, and it, it, this is the one where you could adopt the grace period all the way to the end of this year. This is the one where you could allow plan changes on your FSA without a qualifying event, as well as even under your medical, dental, and vision plans without a qualifying event. 
And so that's, that one is completely optional. The next question is, what is the rule on COBRA premium extension periods? Oh, this one is that they, there's a grace period on COBRA payments, on sending out COBRA packets, and, and signing up for COBRA. So any COBRA deadline, there's a grace period that was built into the, um, the joint notice. And so essentially, if I'm an employee and I'm laid off in April, I have until 60 days after the, the outbreak period to sign up for COBRA all the way back to April 1. If I can't pay my COBRA premium, I have from 60 days to the end of the outbreak period to pay those COBRA premiums. But that doesn't mean that they cannot be canceled for non-payment. The COBRA participant can still be canceled for non-payment. But if that COBRA participant comes and pays their bill, their overdue bill, at any time up to 60 days after the outbreak period, then you have to reinstate them back onto the coverage, back to the date that they lost that coverage or they want to sign up for that coverage. If you have a COBRA vendor, I recommend reaching out to them, getting their stance on it. And in fact, a lot of them put a notice in the COBRA packets that speak to this. And so look at the COBRA vendor's material if you're outsourcing COBRA. And if you're not, you want to, if you're not, if you're doing in-house COBRA, please, please read the regulations in detail because as the employer, you are responsible. You will be responsible for administering that correctly. Thanks everyone for joining. That's all the questions that I see. I will send a copy of the Q&A posed. If I didn't get to your question, I will answer it in the Q&As that I will send out after um, the, the webinar is finished, and that's probably going to be on Monday, Monday afternoon-ish. Thanks again, everyone. Be safe. I'll talk to you next month.